Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast with Peter Young, who is now very deep down the rabbit hole and helping out the Free Private Cities Initiative, which is a very, very cool thing. Uh, having someone like Peter very close to this project and being able to shape it with his Bitcoin logic is something I think we all want to see as potential citadel dwellers so i hope you enjoy this episode with peter who's been doing some some great work and this is second time back on the show thanks peter for for giving up the time now uh heads up if this is the first time you're listening to this interview but perhaps peter has shared it with you my daughter asks the first question on each one of these podcasts so that is the reason why lauren and her uncle peter get to have uh, a little discussion at the, uh, the very beginning here. I hope you enjoy the episode. If you are new to Bitcoin, welcome, stick around. The water is warm and the people are very, very friendly despite what you might hear. We're here to help anybody understand monetary history, monetary policy and where Bitcoin and how Bitcoin will fix this. Uh, before we do start this, I do want to give some big shout outs to the show sponsors. You know who they are by now. It is Bitcoin Reserve, Swan Bitcoin, Relay, and Coin Corner. These are all places you can stack sats. You can stack with Swan in the US. The other companies I've mentioned here, you can stack across Europe and the UK. All the links are in the show notes. These guys are bona fide Bitcoiners. They want to help you understand more about Bitcoin, more importantly, stack sats. Please take control of your coins. Use a Bitbox 02 hardware wallet from Shit Crypto. It's a Bitcoin only edition. Make sure you pick one up and take control. If you're not, you're going to leave something to chance. And it's not what you want to do with your coins. And don't forget, if you want to get across to the Bitcoin conference, April 6th to 9th in Miami, it's going to be huge. There is going to be four days. The first day is an industry day where people are going to pitch ideas, get to uh, meet each other, build in the space, come together and just talk about how we're going to build out this parallel system. Days two and three are going to be all of the different speakers, all of the fun stuff that you would generally see and find at a conference. And day four is going to be a music festival called Sound Money Fest, headlined by rapper and fellow Bitcoiner Logic, as well as Steve Aoki, CL, Run the Jewels, San Holo, and I've been dug out for perhaps mispronouncing this, Dead Mao 5 are going to be there and many more. Last year's conference sold out and this year's is on pace to be three times as big so make sure you grab your tickets. Use the code BITTEN at checkout for a 10% discount. Again, the link is in the show notes and we are going to have people there such as Bukele, the president, Nayib Bukele from El Salvador, who's going to make a big announcement. 
And then you got Sailor, Elizabeth Stark, Jack Mallard, Adam Back, and hundreds more. Make sure you get there. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Peter. Are you going to ask me who I'm going to orange kill at the end? Because I already said that, Mark, one. But are you going to ask me again? I need to have we're a good answer we're, for that. We're, record, we're recording, Peter. And Lauren's disappeared. No, wait. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Are yeah. you going to ask me for a second orange kill? Yes, absolutely. Who do you, have you not prepared oh, yourself? Distract me. Peter, of um, all the people I expected to come prepared. I am a man who tends to do his prep. But on this occasion, I've got a feeling that you're going to... Well, I, I, I'm not going to give you any chance. Or, uh, Peter, if you had one orange pill left to give to someone, who would you give it to and why? Uh, mate, who would I give it to? This is a first, listeners. We're front-loading. No, 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 we're not putting this in. <laughs> we, we totally are. We're, we're, we're recording. We're going to stop this. This is... Uh, it comes at the end. That's the rule. You can't just flip around. Who do you think you are? The podcast host? Just flipping around the format like you're in control of this situation. It was Lauren's idea. <laughs> but no, it wasn't. Liar. <laughs> yeah. We'll come to that at the end, Dan. Okay. You, see, you, you need see a how, lot of time to think. You see how authoritative he is? How, how I'm, I'm way slower than all the other guests. This, this is why he is the perfect man for, to, to, uh, to, to drive forward the Free Private Cities initiative. Because okay. he, he doesn't take any shit. Yeah. What's your question? Uh, what is Free Private Cities? You see how I laid that up? Yeah. <laughs> free Private Cities. Free private cities are an idea for running the cities, towns, metropolitan areas that we all live in today on a purely voluntary basis. The way it works at the moment is that we have generally in most countries an electoral system where 51% of the people, if 51% of the people vote one way, then that means that that party, the ruling people that they vote in, have control over absolutely everyone even if 49% of people don't agree or have very strongly opposed views. What Free Private Cities does instead is it's a concept for setting up cities that are run by a operating company, a bit like the company that might run uh, your mobile phone tariff or rent you a house or uh, sell you your energy bill. And you would have a contract, a real contract that outlines what you can and can't do in the city and how much it's gonna cost. And then other than that, you're allowed to do what you want. So within the current system, we try and we try and make sure that people are heard through the uh, electoral system, through the voting system. But unfortunately, what that means is if there are minorities of any kind, then they end up getting left out. And also, you only tend to have really two, maybe three choices of who you can vote for. Whereas in our system, companies can set up all the rules for a city and you can decide to come be part of the city. You can understand all the conditions in advance. And then you can choose voluntarily to be part of it. And once you're part of it, you've got the right to do whatever is specified within your contract, but you don't have the right to interfere with other people. So if someone else has got a different contract to you with the operator, which they might have if they come earlier or later for various reasons, or because they've requested more from the operator, then you don't have a right to interfere in that. And through this model, we hope to get to a society which is much fairer, much more ethical, where people can uh, thrive and become more prosperous and we have less poverty. And so that's why I'm passionate about the idea 
and supporting it through the work of the foundation. What a contact is, Lawrence. It's like a piece of paper that you sign. Yeah. Which is basically paperwork. Yeah. Do, do you want to elaborate a little bit, Peter? It's a piece of paper you sign that's basically paperwork. <laughs> but what the <laughs> advantage it has is that it puts in black and white all of the conditions that both sides have. So both of them can, both sides can look at the contract and they can say, okay, one of the conditions of living here is that I don't pollute the public areas. I don't throw litter on the public areas. What will happen if I'm caught violating that? Well, I could face a fine. This is also specified in the contract so people know what to expect. And maybe I'll get ejected from the city if I keep being antisocial, if I keep littering in public areas, if I keep making noise after a certain time at night, if I try and interfere with what's happening in my neighborhood in areas where I'm not invited to do that, then there are specifications in the contract. But the advantage of the contract is that it puts everything in nice, clear black and white terms. So the person that's running the city understands what's expected and the person that's living in the city understands what expected, what's expected. And that comes in a great contrast to what we have now, where we've got thousands and thousands of pages of laws that no one really understands fully. And you have to hire expensive people to help you interpret the law and defend yourself against the case. And our philosophy, Lauren, is that we don't think that reasonable people need thousands upon thousands of rules to live together in a civilized and peaceful way. We think actually the basic rule is don't force other people to do things they don't want to do, respect their property, respect their privacy. And within that, sure, you can have special cases, but really those are the guiding principles and that's not very complicated. And most cultures around the world understand that you shouldn't attack people, that you should respect their property, that you shouldn't barge into their home without permission. And we think these are principles that are aligned to human nature. And we would like to create cities that are based on these concepts. Right. Well, the French police didn't really do that. No. Came here. We, we are, we are the, the, uh, the opposite end of what Peter is talking about. Uh -huh. Do you want to explain? Uh, so we went to England uh, for Christmas. And when we got back, the we're supposed to, to where? Oh, to, to France. Mm -hmm. Sorry. When we got back to France, um, the police called and said, uh, "Where are you? I came to check up on you at three p.m. and you you weren't there." And um, and my mum explained that oh, we were in the airport in. Um, we we were we just arrived. Yeah, we just arrived, and he said, "Well, where where, where are you?" And we were just on the way home. Yeah, we were on the way home, mm -hmm. but uh, somewhere in oh, don't dox ourselves. Okay. you don't need to name the town. <laughs> somewhere in somewhere, and um, uh, he said, "Well, what are you doing that?" And she just said, "Well, driving home." And he's like, "Oh." And then basically the call ended there. Well, no, he said, um, do you have proof oh, that yeah. you have just arrived in the airport? Yeah. In which we had lots of proof because, because now just we get on an airplane, each of us needs 58 pieces of paper. Yeah. And then they came and visited the house four or five days later yeah. to check that we were apparently um, self-isolating. Yeah, and it looked like they weren't really wanting to do that. So... 
how did that make you feel? I went there, so I didn't really know, but <laughs> you weren't self isolating. <laughs> um, so because uh, because we thought the rule was a bit stupid. Yes. We just came home to from seeing family that we hadn't seen. We actually I saw them, but um. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen one part of the family for two years because I went and I forgot and so does, visited them. So does Peter's contract sound a little bit fairer than what we have in current day? Yeah. A lot okay. fairer than here. So there you go, Peter. Even an 11-year-old can, uh, can see through what's going on. Yeah. And, and what I should say, Lauren, is that I think you me and your daddy have very similar ideas about how we want to live personally but there are lots of people out there that disagree with us and that's okay in the free private cities model the only way there are some people that are very, really worried about covid and really worried about other diseases and they want to live in a community where everyone is monitored and everyone is tracked and they have qr codes to come in and out and actually i think that's okay if they want to do that but the difference with the free private cities model is that in order for that to be possible, the person or the company that's running the city has to have a contract that says in the event of pandemics or in the event of threats specified as X, Y, and Z, we are allowed to impose a curfew on you. We are allowed to restrict your movement in and out of the city or within the city. We are allowed to stop you from visiting your friends, your family, for having Christmas together, we're going to ask for proof that you have vaccines to get into individual shops. And the reality is there actually are quite a lot of people that want that. And people that want that are free to move to those kinds of places. But people that don't want that are free also to say, you know what? COVID's real, it's out there, but we don't want to make this the focus of our lives. And we recognize that part of the reason that humans are alive is not just to survive, it's to thrive and we want to have a good quality of life. And so people yeah. that would want to move to those kinds of places would have the freedom to do so. And one of the problems we have, particularly in the UK and in France, is that we have this majoritarian system where we're forced, because the government's got such power, we're forced into constant debates about what the right policy should be, whether we should have a curfew, lockdown, whether people should work from home. And these issues are never resolvable. And the reason for that is because we're trying to resolve an unresolvable problem, which is what should the correct policy be for 65 million people when they all have a different policy that's right for them. So free private cities solve this problem by saying, we want to turn this into a purely voluntary political system. People that want that can have it and pay the cost for it. Because frankly, if you're saying that you're not going to allow people to socially distance or go to work or, or you want to have all this plastics everywhere and you want to have all these expensive infrastructure for scanning, they can live there and they can pay the costs for it. And they see those costs much more directly because they have to pay them through their, their fees or through their loss of income. Um, whereas people that had a different view would be able to try out that. And I think the free private cities model would really help our societies to become less divisive. And actually there's nothing wrong with people have different differing preferences about how they live. Free yeah. private cities is a model that allows them to do that in a peaceful way so that we can all pursue the things that are important to us. Right. So we just need like Peter to hurry up and 
you know, like uh, implement and build these three private that. cities. And by the way, it's a bit of a, exactly, and it's a bit of a misnomer, right? Because it's not cities exclusively. It could be wherever. It could be free private countryside, free basically private beaches. Free, yeah, I've exactly, mostly lived right. here in my whole, in, well, not my whole entire life, but I've mostly seen countries. Find me a place, Lauren, with some farmland, two to five acres. We can raise some animals on, sea views, a golf course nearby, you know, and I'm golden. Right. Okay. Peter's Peter's already smiling. I think he's got a little plan up his sleeve. <laughs> yeah. I've got a little plan for you. You could do like <laughs> cities and like uh and countryside, and they could choose if they want to live in the city. Right, hang on, Peter's about to shill us something. <laughs> just just sit back and listen. Yeah, there's exactly. It doesn't have to be a city. We're just using that term because that's how people generally tend to to come together when they're given the choice within cities and there are lots of agglomeration benefits along uh, we that's a word that means that there are advantages of different kinds in terms of economics in terms of happiness when people tend to come together but there's also advantages of being further away but we do see a lot of economic benefits from living together and being together and that's why the default is a city but this could really apply to a sparsely populated agricultural area and as Daniel mentions, there are some projects already that are pursuing our idea of free private cities. I've just been to visit a couple of them in Honduras. One of them is called Morazan, which is more of a kind of free trade zone area, which is hosting companies with a very kind of liberal economic policy and getting entrepreneurs in to set up their businesses from, from the ground up. And then there's Prospera on the island of Rautan, which has done a lot of very advanced thinking on frameworks for governing business activity in a way that provides people more freedom, but also allows them to interact with some of the legacy systems that we have in real countries, um, you know, like, you know, in America or in, in the UK, um, so that they can kind of interact with those and still trade, but also live in a way that we that they think is much more freedom oriented. So there are some great projects out there already in early stages, but for those people who are really keen to be pioneers, uh, we can certainly share some links in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But isn't like Bitcoin Beach like that or what was it? Peter's been there. Stop asking me. Ask Peter. Just ask Bitcoin if... Beach, you got it, it okay, right. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, so is Bitcoin Beach basically what you're thinking, but a, li a little bit different? I really like Bitcoin Beach. Um, for listeners that aren't aware, it's a small town, a fishing town, a village, I would call it, uh, on the south coast of El Salvador, a small country in uh, Latin America with about 6.5 million people. And this small community has become famous because they've been working with a company called Galloy Money to uh, implement a simple Bitcoin wallet called the Bitcoin Beach wallet. And that that's a kind of community wallet whereby the private keys are held by certain people within the community and it allows there's a degree of trust involved because it's a community project but what it's allowing is for people across this community to trade with each other in bitcoin to save in bitcoin and for that reason it's become quite famous and what i personally think lauren is that within free private cities you would have much more market dominance you wouldn't have coercion and in a system where there was more market dominance, I would expect Bitcoin to become the dominant money and the dominant way in which the finance of the city was run and the dominant way in which people trade with each other, uh, because I just think it has better monetary properties. And money is one of those things where 
it's, I mean, nothing's totally objective, but money is one of the more objective things. And really you just want your money to be able to do some simple things, which is help you to trade with other people and help you to store the value that you earn from your work across time. And what I'd say about Elizonte is it's great that they've been introducing Bitcoin and there've been some great benefits that I could talk more about from them having done that. But what they don't have in Elizonte, which is what I want to try and create for other cities in the world, is a political system that's also aligned to the same principles that me and your daddy think are good in Bitcoin, in that Bitcoin is a completely voluntary system. Its rules are transparent and known to all, so people can use it no matter where they're from or what their socioeconomic background is. Anyone with a smartphone or a computer can use Bitcoin. And so with free private cities, basically, it's the same idea that we have a set of transparent rules. Everyone that comes in can see the rules of the city and decide voluntarily whether they want to abide by them, whether they're willing to pay the operator of the city for some basic services. And within El Zonte, they don't have that. They're still governed by the main government in, in El Salvador. So they don't have any special rules about, for example, what people are taxed, what the regulations are for, for labor, um, what you can build, uh, whether you can make noise at night, all these things are still determined by local governments and national policy in El Salvador. And so what I want to do is create a higher degree of freedom for places like El Zonte so that they can go further and they can start to solve some of the even broader kind of challenges that they have um, by creating a, a more voluntary uh, way of governing themselves as well as uh, governing themselves financially. Right. Okay. I got one more question. Yeah. Okay. Does that make so sense? what would you rate Bitcoin Beach out of zero and ten? For, for what? 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 Just how good it was. Just how good it was. Oh, <laughs> uh, for surf, for beach, for food, for everything. Oh, okay. Oh, right. you could do zero to a hundred. Right. No. I, I tried to help Peter, but there you go. Thanks, man. Um, what? What's it? What's Bitcoin Beach? A Bitcoin Beach is wonderful. I give it a nine out of ten. Everything can be better, but it's a really fun place to be. It could be better for having a few more accommodation options and having food available at night because uh, it's such a small place. It's quite hard to like, businesses close pretty early and it's still not particularly uh, developed there, but it's a great place to go and hang out. Uh, you can have some great conversations with the locals. Uh, I've made friends with a hotel owner called Isabel down there and we're chatting every day these days. Um, she's a, she's a, an older lady that's trying to get to grips with everything that's happening in El Zonte around Bitcoin. And the first conversation I had with her, it was all, oh, I, I can never use Bitcoin. It's too, once the older generation die out, then the younger generation would take over and we'll have Bitcoin. But until then, no. And I was like, yeah, all right, all right. Seeing that she's got like six or seven smartphones, laptops lying on her desk. And I'm like, oh yeah, so you, you're too, uh, you're unable to, to use this, this technology, right? Because it's too complicated. And then I went back there a couple of weeks later in December, I went back to see her and she'd had a bit of time to like mull over everything. And uh, we were talking a bit about Bitcoin and she was saying, oh, but it's too complicated, it's too complicated. And I said to her, well, I mean, 
if you're so interested in Bitcoin, you've spent so much time talking to me about Bitcoin. People are coming here to find out about Bitcoin. Bitcoin's everywhere. And you're kind of saying, oh, let them get on with it. Would you be interested to set up a Bitcoin wallet just to see how it actually works? And we could do this in like two to three minutes. And she was kind of like, oh, I see what you're doing. Here he comes. But she did it. I got her set up on a very basic wallet, wallet of Satoshi, a custodian model wallet, which I think you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? And that's the easiest way to do it. But we went through, I didn't touch her phone. I just talked to her. I did like, I think this is a good way with people that are maybe less confident with technology. Like don't say, click this, click this, click this, click this. But just get them to look at the screen and think about what's happening. And that's what I did with her. I, was, I said, okay, we want to download this wallet, wallet of Satoshi. How do we do it? What should we click on? You go to the app store and then it's like, You've got like two to three options on the screen. So she says, what do I do? What do I click? Say, what do, what do you think you click? And basically just by like guiding her through, she was able to download the wallet, um, set it up, receive some Bitcoin, send some Bitcoin. And I didn't even touch her phone. She did it all herself, which is some guiding questions. And now she receives Bitcoin. So if you want to go down to El Zonte, you can pay in Bitcoin at this hotel. And uh, she'll, she'll hate me for saying that live on live on air, but <laughs> I'm going to force her to take this business because uh, I think a lot of it will come her way when people cotton on that she's one of the hotels that will accept Bitcoin because it's quite easy to do it with the stalls, but some of the hotels are still catching up. Good hotel. And uh, it's, a, it's a good hotel. It's right on the, on the seafront. It's really nice. It's got a lovely pool. It's got drinks and everything. You'll have a great time. Um, are you going to show the name? Oh, mate, I've actually forgotten the name. All right, don't worry. Shay Isabel. Oh, no, it would be Casa Isabel, wouldn't it, in Spanish? Well, you can, you can, yeah. look, you can search it up. Yeah, search it up. That's what Yeah, we can put it in the show notes. Yeah. Oh, look it up. God, you guys. Uh, all right. Um, exactly. Now, what, what Peter's explaining, that's what I did with, uh, with Xavier the other day. Um, mm -hmm. It was the twins' birthday. You need to say thank you to Peter. He sent you some stats. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Lauren. Great to chat. And by the way, I've been loving your contributions to these podcasts. I messaged your dad the other day and I said, how old is your daughter, Lauren? Because she's asking questions of like a 15, 16 year old. Um, in particular, when you were chatting to one of daddy's guests and he was asking you about how inflation works and you gave a really good example, a really good explanation of how inflation works. I just thought, wow, if a small fraction of the population understood inflation as well as Lauren, we would be in a much better place than we are today. So I want to say, Lauren, keep it up. You're awesome. Thank Happy you. birthday. And I look forward to the next podcast with Daddy and having more questions. Well, I, I just want to say, say thank you to the people who helped me understand inflation, which is a lot of people on the podcast that came on, and Daddy, that he went on about it every day. <laughs> That's a great thing, Lauren. And I really admire what your dad's doing um, with this because I just think it's so cool. Like, you've got to make, meet so many cool people, right? Haven't you? Yeah. I mean, so many famous people I've never met. And I got to make so many <laughs> sets. Yeah, you did. You got, you got a lot of sets for your birthday from the community. And Peter was kind enough to send some across as well. Yeah. So well, this is your Uncle Peter. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> well, oh, yeah, keep doing your thing, Lauren. It's great to chat to you. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye, Lauren.
Cheers, mate. As she closes the door, yeah, she exits exits stage left. <clears throat> and this is the about the time where the uh, the the listenership drops off as uh, as Lauren leaves, <laughs> as I'm told constantly on uh, on Bitcoin Twitter. But uh, what what I like about uh, free private cities, mate. Uh, did you find the name of the hotel before we move on? Do you need to shill that quickly? Um, I'm just looking up. So basically, there's a river that runs through the middle of Elzonte, and it's just on the right side of the river, right in the middle. Um, of all the prep you were, you you probably done. You were never. Ah, uh, yeah, it's called Estancia Nativia. Okay, let's just have a quick look. Yeah. It's called Essencia Nativa. That's the name of the hotel. I'll put it in the I'll put it in the chat, brother. All right. Okay, we're back. Um, yes, we just finished uh, talking to Lauren. Right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I was about to pick it up. Um, what I like about free private cities, mate, is uh, this this isn't a LARP, right? There, there's this is something that you know we, we've got to know each other over the last couple of years. Uh, I, it's it's weird. I, I just had um, Tom on from uh, satsback.com, who was part of our original group with with Safe as well. There's so many people from this this Safe group uh, that uh, that started that course. That have gone on to spread their wings and do other things it's so it's so great to see and you, you and i connected pretty early and we've become pretty good friends and i love your little uh, voice messages telegram updates that you share with me and when when you were offered this position at free private cities i was so damn bullish on it you're like the absolute perfect guy for it because of your previous experience working in china and working in um well, why don't you tell the listeners what, what you were doing before in China? I know we've you've been on the show before and we went into that deeply, but just uh, a quick outline of, of what you were doing in China and uh, how you can carry that skill set over to, to free private cities. So I lived in China for 10 years, between the years of 2010 and 2020. Started off working as an English teacher straight out of uni and just kind of exploring a new country and getting really into the culture and language. And then I got a job working for the British Embassy. I applied for something online, was successful, and that got me into the UK government system in China. And I was with the UK government or an aligned organization for six years. And it was really through that experience that I learned how governments in general function, really, in reality. And I learned about economics because there was a lot of economics thrown around in business cases for funding where people would make claims about what funding proposals would do for GDP or would do for various other macroscopic metrics, societal, economic, etc. And this is where I started to really understand how these sorts of economic arguments were used to justify decision making. And really from the beginning, Daniel, um, at the beginning, I was very excited about working for the UK government and it's pretty prestigious. People respect you in China, especially other expats there, because it seems like a, a cool job to be working at the British embassy in Beijing and the Chinese roll out the red carpet for other government officials. 
So it was pretty a pretty cushy gig. But early on, I started to realize, hang on, I'm not sure I really agree with these kinds of economic justifications for doing stuff. I started to look at how money was spent and think, wow, this seems like pretty like a pretty bad way to spend the money. I mean, China's so cheap. I was living comparing like my rent, for example, to the rent that was it was possible to get if you were you know, UK based employee. And I was thinking, why are we spending so much money on all of this stuff? Why are we doing all of these things in the way that doesn't really seem to respect the fact that this is money that could be going either back in the pockets of taxpayers or to nurses, teachers, and all this, all this kind of stuff. So I was on a bit of a journey from really the beginning of starting work there. And you mentioned Saifedina Moose. He was a huge, he was and is a huge influence on my thinking. From about 2017, I became aware of him and I read the Bitcoin standard shortly after it came out the following year. And the Bitcoin standard just gave me an entirely new way of thinking about economics, because basically what Saifedean was doing there is very eloquently through the prism of the historical emergence of money, introducing people to the Austrian school of economics. And that was key for me because the Austrian school of economics is really just the only coherent way of understanding economics that exists. There are all kinds of paradoxes, such as the paradox of value, the idea that value can be objective and that market prices represent objective value built into mainstream schools of economics which is just logically incoherent you can start from them as a premise but the entire framework you build up when you do start from them is built on you know uh foundations of sand because they're there are logical fallacies built in right at the beginning and they also have assumptions about things like objectively quantifiable utility they make assumptions about how many units of utility will be created by government decision X, Y, and Z. And even, for example, when you look at how, you know, the health healthcare is funded in the UK, they use a model related to something called quality adjusted life years, which tries to quantify how much it's worth in pounds and pence to extend someone's life in a quality manner by a certain amount of money, um, by a certain amount of time, sorry, and, and how much you should spend on it. And, I can understand why they do it and the people that do it are very well-meaning, but they've got an impossible task, which is to try and come up with objective quantifications for decisions that are ultimately totally subjective and totally, it can only be judged by the individuals that are involved in that situation. So I started to become aware of the Austrian School of Economics through Saifedean, and then I went really big on the school. I, I spent a lot of time I was doing my day job, but in the evenings, you know, day job was working in trade and investment in China, uh, running business missions for UK companies to come to China and sell it to China. That was pretty interesting, but the way it was funded, the way it was set up, various things I had issues with. But by night, I was going deep into the Austrian School of Economics, and I was actually using Saifedean's bibliography in the Bitcoin standard as my, as my reference. I wrote down about 30 books in that bibliography and I, I sort of sat down and I said, I need to read all of these books. And then I thought, no, that's stupid. You're going to read like two or three of them. You're not going to read 30 books. Who reads 30 books? But honestly, 
I ended up reading, I ended up getting through the vast majority of that list and a lot more through becoming a bit obsessed with, <laughs> with this, to be honest, partly because I'd been through such an ordeal mentally, Daniel, in terms of uh, trying to make sense of things, economic justifications for spending, certain interventions, policies that try to restrict labor markets or promote exports and all these things. And I've been trying to make, get my head around them. And I'm just like, these just don't make sense. Like, how can it be the case that this policy can be right? And when I came across the Austrian school, it was suddenly like everything clicked. And then I thought, okay, I can go deep with this. Okay, there's some basic ideas at the foundations of the Austrian school, like the subjectivity theory of value, but you can go deeper and you can try and understand how this affects things like money, inflation, trade cycles, all of these things. And that's a whole rabbit hole. But once you've been through it, you come out the other end thinking, feeling at peace, actually, because you think, okay, now I kind of get it. Most of the world is against me right now. But at least I know what I think and I can justify what I think in a convincing way. And I can make a judgment about how I, through my life, can act ethically in the world. And that's the end of the day, all that any of us can do. It's like picking up the instructions to the game that you've been playing your whole life. It is. That's a very good way of putting it. It's just, it's mad, isn't it? Once you see through it, and you were living in China, those years, those years between 10 and 20, where, you know, China was booming. They were buying every commodity that they could get their hands on. It was just absolutely ridiculous. These, When you look at malinvestment, so you were probably, again, subconsciously looking at what your own job entitled you to do and the malinvestment on the side of the UK government. But then looking around you and thinking, you know, like the ghost cities are a perfect example of what was going on in China. Like the, the amount of malinvestment that was going on, you know, with, with this like ridiculous infrastructure that these, it was, it was mental. And th these, I was in Singapore at these times and it was affecting the foreign exchange market hugely because the commodities markets were going absolutely crazy. I spoke with Jake recently, who was a shipping broker in Singapore at the same time I was in Singapore doing a foreign exchange. And he was dealing, he was brokering these ship deals, you know, iron ore out of goodness knows where, all across Australia, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, Thailand, wherever else you would find natural resources, whether it was coal lumber, iron ore, natural gas, whatever. It was all going to Singapore. And then I spent the years of uh, 2012, 13 and early 14 in commodities, watching how much soy they were buying from Brazil, how much palm oil they were importing. And with soy, it wasn't just the oil, it was the, the meal as well. And all of these commodities, it was all flowing into China. Yeah, All of it. it. It was just unbelievable. So you might not have been aware of exactly what was going on in those markets, but subconsciously you must have been like fully aware of the, the, the huge amounts of malinvestment that was going on around you. Yeah, in a way. But the thing to bear in mind there 
is that every single economy in the world is to an extent a, a mixed economy. There's no economy in the world that's got a market model, fully market model. And also the way that international trade functions is based on the US dollar denominated system, whereby countries are forced into certain policies by the fact that they have to use the payment rails of the US dollar. And it means that they have to obey certain financial rules. It means that they have to make sure they don't annoy the US government and get sanctioned. The thing that I'm starting to discover, Daniel, is that how much of the people talk about globalization and the thing I'm starting to discover is just how much of the globalization story results from the way money works. Because I guess I knew this in theory, but when going to El Salvador, for example, I spoke to people working in business, working for banks. I said to them, hey, you guys have got a forward thinking president. You've adopted Bitcoin. Why don't you just not bother with all of this? All of these strange regulations that people in the US seem to have to obey with and people in Europe seem to have to obey. Why don't you just lose them completely? Why don't you guys as a bank, for example, put Bitcoin on your balance sheet? Why don't you just say, hey, we're going to basically start moving stuff onto a Bitcoin standard within our bank and making that your core business because it's something you're fully in control of. And the response is, if we do that, we lose our relationships with our corresponding banks in the US or in Europe because Bitcoin is still very small. You know, I don't know what it is today, 700, 800 billion dollar market cap. But compared to say the global bond market, 100 trillion or even gold, you know, 12 trillion, 13 trillion, Bitcoin is still really small. And the reality is that for payments, people need to be able to access the US dollar financial system. They need the payments rails in order to function. That's where investment comes in. That's where the big funds flow. And so even in places like El Salvador, when they've got a quite rebellious president who's trying to do stuff like reject IMF loans in favor of financing infrastructure using a Bitcoin bond, they're still really constrained in what they can do. And this is something I started to discover, like how just how globalized the world has become and how much of that is centered on the US. Um, and I want to make a point about China, Daniel, because you raised it there in terms of the malinvestment in China, these ghost cities that you see a lot of news stories about, the big highways that aren't getting used. And sure, there's definitely that happens to a certain extent. But I think it's really important to acknowledge how how much incredible progress has been made in China and how many of these projects are not malinvestments. They are really adding value for people. But I would argue that's a result of the free market side of China, because there is a huge free market side of China. And it's also a result of the fact that the model of socialism in China is very different to the model of socialism in Britain in a way that I think if you're going to be socialist, there are certain things you can do. And the way in which they function as a socialist state is better than the way we function. So, for example, in Britain, if you look at your tax return at the end of each year and you can see where it goes, where the government funds go, and you can see, first of all, that something like 
A third of it is going to go to welfare of some kind or another, transfer payments, be it like state pension or people that are out of work or people that are on housing benefit. You can see that like a third of that revenue is going towards that. And that's something like more than the entire government budget of Thailand, like times two or something last I checked. It's, it's huge figures. And that's what we spend our money on in the UK. It's, it's kind of providing transfer payments to people and in a way incentivizing them to not be productive and not work, which I think is hugely economically damaging and not good for a number of reasons. Um, but I guess the difference in China is they don't have that kind of welfare state. They do have huge power in the hands of government and they do have large government owned enterprises. But again, these enterprises are not immune from market forces. They still have to operate kind of in competition with each other, kind of in competition with different provinces. If it's a provincial company, they still have to operate in a manner that means that they get the resources they need from the central government, which is kind of like a hybrid process. They still need to compete on international markets. So there's an element there of market competition and they are run mainly as for-profit companies and the people that run do benefit if they do well. So what you kind of got in China is really, the difference between China is we're, we're spending in the UK a third of our budget on welfare payments. They're not spending any of that on welfare. They're spending all of that on producing coal, steel, building houses, doing all these things. And inevitably you get malinvestments or rather, I mean, in this context, I just prefer the term bad investments because malinvestments is really a term that refers to investment that comes about due to the creation of trade cycles. So it's, a, it's really a term that the Austrian school uses to describe the situation where interest rates have been held below their market level. And therefore you get a big boom of everything happening because it makes sense on a nominal basis to invest, but then you don't get the, the returns. So there are lots of bad investments in China. Um, but also there's loads of good investments that have worked out really well. And overall, my position is, is kind of, if things continue as they are, with the current political system, not, no major change, I'm, I'm way more bullish on China than I am on Britain and America, unfortunately, because I think they are just so far from being in the right mindset that I can't see things really, uh, progressing and, and the thing about China, the reason this is really damaging as well, Daniel, is that China doesn't have to have the ideal political model. It just needs to be more successful than the United States and Britain. And what that allows China to do is say, hey, you know how everyone thinks about the world in that we had a Cold War in the 20th century and we had the capitalist West against the communist East. And you know how all of these people protesting on the streets of London are saying down with the banks, down with capitalism, down with greedy corporations. Well, that's capitalism. And in China, we don't have that. We have socialism with Chinese characteristics. We have a market-based economy that has a paternal hand of the state. And our state is so much more efficient, so much better than their state. And they're trying to go for the free market capitalist model. And we're going for something more middle of the road, more socialist, more, and they would say it's more benevolent, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the, one of the real problems with the narrative we have about what our governments are doing. We're portraying ourselves as being capitalist free market societies when the reality is so far from that. We are incredibly status societies in the West, but our brand of statism is less effective than China's 
And what that's doing is vindicating China in a very, very strong way in such that all the Chinese people feel vindicated and they feel that their government's good and the government has a very high level of, of support. But what's actually happening is they're just misdiagnosing the fact that China is more free market than the West and they're saying that it's due to system they have which keeps the elites in power in China. And so one of the things I would like us to do is start, I think where we need to start, Daniel, is changing the way we talk about what our systems are, because what we have in the West is nowhere near capitalism or free markets. And what they have in China is in some ways nearer to it, but it's still not there. And this is why we want free private cities <laughs> to provide an actual example of how free markets can work. So we can say, hey, it's not China, it's not Western Europe, it's not America, but this is the thing that we should be focusing on. I can't believe how many people you're triggering right now. There's uh... <laughs> Kyle Bass would be one, one of the biggest, uh, you know, macro investor detractors of China. Um, <clears throat> that, um, I yeah, I don't know, man. I, I know exactly what you're saying. I really, really do. Um, but is like sheeping like? Is he like someone or, you know, the, like the, the, the CCP, are they to be trusted in, in any way? Um, my take on the CCP is that they are in a way to be trusted, I suppose. They tend to have a kind of ideology about them which is very very different from the ideology that people tend to have in western countries and that's part a product of millennia of chinese culture it's part a product of the fact that they have an entirely different political system and therefore the way in which people rise through the ranks is different but in a way it's a more And comparing it to the West is a better strategy. What this, what I think people, this is, this is kind of to an extent speculation, but you can learn about it and you can try and get a sense of whether I'm right or wrong through reading, for example, the speeches of Xi Jinping or through official government statements or via reading some leaked documents from the Chinese government about how they should approach the West. But essentially what they have in China I mean, China is a strange place. It's not like the UK, where you've got loads of people who are Christians, Muslims, um, Hindus, whatever. There's a kind of superstition in China around gods, a kind of vague mix of belief systems that come from Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism. They're all kind of tied together. But the thing they have in common is they're all from China, and they're all things which are tied into the history of the Chinese state and a kind of quasi-religious belief in China. And in fact, if you talk about historical figures going back far enough, for example, to the Three Kingdoms uh, period, there's this kind of blurring of what was actually real, what happened, what's just metaphor. But the effect is there's kind of this religion in China about what China is, about the uniqueness of China in the world. The people feel that they are a distinct race, very distinct from other races, particularly Europeans, 
I'm here in Mexico at the moment, Daniel. And when I talk to people here, I don't get this sense of like, oh, we're Mexican, you're British. Oh, we're so different. It's kind of like, oh, maybe you're, you speak English and that's an interesting, but we'll just have a chat. In China, it's much more focused on a dynamic between a Chinese person and a foreigner and the differences and whatever. And so in China- you, Ang Mo? Is... Was, was that the word they used in China, Ang Mo? Sorry, say again? Did they call you an Angmo in China or a Guaylo? Uh, no, Guaylo is Japanese. Um, but uh, oh no, sorry, that's some Cantonese. Cantonese, yeah, that's what they say in Hong Kong. That's right. Yeah. That's that's what I was in Singapore. A Guaylo or an Angmo, right. uh, and Japanese was Gaijing, right? That's it. Um, Gaijing. That's it. Yeah, it's Guaygo or Langwai in China. Langwai is the slightly more derogatory, more commonly used one. Um, and what does that translate to? Old foreign, literally, or old whitey, or something like that. Literally, old foreign, but it's used. You generally use it on white people, um, and you might say something different for Japanese people or black people in China. Uh, but yeah, it's generally a term that's used to talk about white foreigners in China. Um, but just to finish the point on the CCP, basically, I think they do have they are very self-interested people, of course, at the top, they want to become wealthy, they do amass incredible wealth by being involved in Chinese politics. Um, but they also have this kind of religious ideology, which is China is a thing, and we need to make China succeed. And China is in competition, it's like a kind of zero sum game competition between China and the rest of the world, particularly the US, they're obsessed with the US, they want the US hegemony to fail, they want to be vindicated. And there's a strong sense of firstly, identification with China. So the people in the government will do what is in China's national interest, they will not do what the UK government does and spend loads of money on foreign aid, with no particular objective in mind other than to help the people. They will have specific targeted strategies for making China outcompete other countries. And this is the kind of ideology they have. And a lot of this comes from face, respect, like respect. People, Chinese people want to be respected. So like much more than other cultures, people, everyone wants to be respected as part of human nature. But that's the thing, they want to be respected. And they're very, very clever at doing things that firstly portray them in a way that gets them respected. And secondly, in a way that keeps them in power. And the current narrative that the Western ideas of capitalism are old hat, unsuccessful, see how they're failing. And we've got a better solution here because we're China and China's got this better history and we've got all this knowledge, all these things that people have laughed at, laughed at us for during the Cultural Revolution, during the Mao era, they said, oh, these aren't of value. Actually, these are Chinese things and these are Asia old values. And it's only a matter of time until our kind of authoritarian political system, which they've always had to a certain extent, succeeds and shows makes us number one on the world stage will there be a free private city in china i suspect not unfortunately then again china does already have some great examples of autonomous cities hong kong is a great example of what can happen when you grant an area autonomy we talked a bit about that our last podcast, I won't go into that further now. But also the special economic zones in China that were introduced in the early 1980s under Deng Xiaoping, the most famous of which is Shenzhen. These are really good case studies for what happens when you provide a high degree of autonomy to cities. I mean, Shenzhen 
it's growing at like 20% a year in GDP terms. Phenomenal growth. It's now, you know, they used to have Guangzhou, Beijing, Shanghai, and now they say Beijing, Guangshen, like as in a four thing to describe the powerful big cities in China. Shenzhen is now one of them, and it was really just nothing. Um, there, were, there were people living there, and it was there was some stuff going on, but really until early 1980s, there wasn't a lot, wasn't a lot there. And it's really the 1990s that it started to properly accelerate Shenzhen. But China's a good case study. But the reason why I don't think you're going to have free private cities in China or that China's going to be one of the last places to implement it is partly because of that Chinese religion over territory. Like some people are kind of like, why don't you let Taiwan go? No, because people have this almost religious identification with the territory of China and they believe Taiwan is an integral part of it. And let me give you an interesting example um, of from uh, from history. So there was a there was a treaty um, signed in uh, 1898 around the extension of the territory of Hong Kong, and this treaty was only allowed to go through by the Chinese side um, because basically they they they'd. Um, lost in some conflicts and they had to make concessions to foreign powers. What Britain wanted was to extend the territory of Hong Kong northwards. And the Chinese said, you can do this, but the one thing you're not allowed to take is this military fort that has existed there for hundreds of years. And the reason they, they agreed to these really humiliating things, but said, this is our sticking point, the fort, is because in Chinese history, whether or not you own an area is not so much determined by how much de facto control you actually have over it. It's more controlled, it's, it's determined by whether you have a military presence there that you can say means you're nominally in charge. So basically what happened, and it's super interesting by the way, how this, what this turned into, this <laughs> was that there was this fort left in Northern Hong Kong, Kowloon, which was nominally under the control of the Chinese, but was completely cut off by British territory in Hong Kong. And the British didn't go in there because they wanted to respect the treaty. But the Chinese couldn't physically get in there because it was within the landmass of Hong Kong. So this area in Hong Kong turned into something called Kowloon Walled City, which became the most densely populated anarchic experiment in the world. And this thing kind of built up from, you know, after the Second World War really started to take off during the Cultural Revolution, loads of people migrated to Hong Kong and they moved there because it was somewhere where there was regulatory ambiguity and they wouldn't have to show their papers and stuff and this just turned into like this crazy anarchic experiment and there's a great book about it which I which I recommend uh, which we can refer to in the show notes uh, but the reason that happened in China was because China was so unwilling to give up a military installation and so I think in terms of the city, the country as it is today, there's still that same pride about being seen to give up autonomy of the territory. And there's such a, a deeply rooted narrative in everyone that China has experienced humiliation after humiliation after humiliation because it gave up territory to foreign powers. And that's the narrative that spun. And there's some truth to it because China was invaded and there were the opium wars and there were historical injustices against China. I think that narrative is so strong that having something which says we want to try something different in a way that is almost extrajudicial wouldn't really fly in a way that it might fly in Latin America, say. 
we've been told uh kind of what's the word i'm looking for not lies um inflated truths maybe about you know life in china like the, the social credit system for example is a big one right now you know that, that's what everybody's anchoring on it's like you know we've got to stop this power grab in the west this is being exported from china uh, with their social credit system and they're coming for uh, our privacy they're coming with the cbdc's they're going to link that to a social credit system this is already going on in china is there credence to that there are certainly things that the chinese government does very efficiently and there are certain things that china does which in the west are still more resisted the idea of having a social credit score and honestly this thing i think at the moment it's really overplayed it's one of the things people tend to know about china that it's got a social credit system and they tend to say it and it's talked about a lot but actually it's not a big deal in china itself um there are some pilots that have been done but it's not actually really influencing people's job prospects or what they can do um it's not a huge deal and at the same time like historically the reason that this whole social credit score came about is because i think in the 1990s or maybe late north early noughties there was a chinese official visit to america and they said oh isn't it interesting how everyone has a credit score in america that's open to the banks the banks can access the credit score why don't we have something like that in china but we're not capitalists like america why don't we have a credit rating like they do in america or do in britain but we can just add a few extra things to it like if you've been a good citizen or whatever so they got the idea from america and they made it their own they're outraged by it but that's the historical origin of the social credit system in china and honestly it's not being used very much and whether how whether it will take off in a big way i don't know but it is certainly something people focus on because it's like seems really bad and seems like the kind of thing that people are worried about happening in the west um but i think in general yeah as i say china wants to be respected and they're going to say look at how well we're doing things look at how competent our government is look at how well we did the wuhan lockdown and how good our results are as a result of that they want to portray themselves as successful and be respected and um there are certain things they do that are efficient and that probably will get copied in the west but again, China's a very mixed bag. Authoritarian elements, but also very free market in, in certain ways. That's weird. Well, it's great to hear your your perspectives on it. You know, having you having lived there on the ground for 10 years, working within the uh the government, seeing so much from the inside, it's uh, you know, it's it's refreshing to have real knowledge. You know, it's uh, rather than just listening to what gets spewed around. Uh, and I'm probably very guilty of, even though I lived in Asia myself for for many years, uh, I only visited China a few times. Um, but having left, uh, I, I have a different view now looking back at uh, like the, the structure of Singapore, for example, which is pretty much a, a one party state uh, and, and the way that they've um, conducted themselves Although no country has shelled themselves in glory over the last 18 months, uh, you know, one, one could argue Sweden, but then Knuts von Holm would turn, your, turn around and say, no, 
they just stayed open because nobody had the balls in government to make a decision and they're all completely inept and that that's the only reason we have a case study uh so that that's that's all pretty interesting but we should move on and talk more about um your personal personal travels over the last when did you leave the uk i'm the uk in october right so that's a good amount of time for you to have experienced that because yeah you were not in a good place in the uk right we, we, we had very very long discussions personally about what was going on there what was going on here uh it must have been a relief for you to uh to get out and, and spread your wings and in this new role as well leaving the uk and getting across to uh was el salvador your first port of call so I went to mainland Europe for just over a month, Switzerland, Austria, Slovenia. And wow, look what's happened to Austria since then. Yeah. So I got to experience what I got to experience different perspectives, Western European perspectives on the lockdown and how some Talk us through that. What, what, what was the difference between between Switzerland, Austria and Croatia? Like, you know, what, what was the so it was Slovenia rather than Croatia, but right. So in terms of COVID policies, you mean? Yeah. And just your feel for, you know, like on the ground, boots on the ground, kind of, you know, what's going on here? Uh, what, what are we being told? What's the narrative to what's actually really happening? Yeah. So I'll start off with Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland had fairly similar policies to what you might expect across the whole of mainland Europe, but was just a bit more relaxed. So there was mask wearing required in shops. Um, they were requiring proof of negative tests to check into hotels, which is something they have in, they had, and I believe still have in Germany, Austria, all of that German speaking part of Europe. But they were a bit more chilled, I think. Slovenia was interesting because there it almost seemed like people people have been given high level instructions to do stuff like check i mean you had ridiculous policies in slovenia it's like for example you were supposed to either show proof of vaccination or show proof of negative test to get into a shopping mall or really do anything that was the official policy in slovenia but the funny thing about it is because it's kind of got this like former Eastern Bloc sort of vibe to it where people don't really trust the government as much and maybe just go through the motions. The feeling was very much of people just going through the motions. So you could walk into a shopping mall and just hold up a thing that was like a week out of date, two weeks out of date saying, I've had a test and they just wouldn't look at it. They'd wave you through. You could hold up really anything and you just got waved through. They occasionally asked in restaurants, but there was an interesting dynamic there because what tended to happen to me was that I would get a, a strange look from someone in, in the restaurant, like a knowing look, where I would, they would say to me something like, I need to ask you whether you have a rapid flow test. And then I would look at them and I'd say, yes, I do. And then say, okay, that's great. I don't need to see it. It was a very strange interaction. This happened many, many times in Slovenia. And Basically, the law says they have to ask for this test, but it doesn't say they have to check it or that they're responsible if it's forged or whatever. So in Slovenia, you could do quite a lot of stuff. Of the three countries, the one that was the most 
alarming was Austria. And I guess part of the alarmingness came from the fact that people there didn't really seem to get how alarming it was and how far it had gone. And also the fact that Austria is a wealthy European country, very much within the kind of Western Europe income bracket. And they have a government that is competent enough to be able to enforce the regulations they put in place properly. And they also had regulations. I mean, some of the regulations, Dan, like if you weren't vaccinated, you're supposed to have a PCR test in order to be able to go to a restaurant. That is that that was that's the actual policy, I believe, still in, in Austria. Not that like, yeah, you, you really can't do you couldn't do anything without being vaccinated. And it's people had just got completely used to showing QR codes in order to just participate in everyday social life, like going to a restaurant or going to the university or um taking part in like a work away day so going into a i went i took part in an away day one day and everyone had to show a pass in order to get into this co-working space area where we had the meetings and people were really on it with the masks in austria so if you don't wear a mask then very quickly someone will mention it to you in a way that they won't in slovenia people just mind themselves mind their own business in slovenia and Switzerland, I didn't have as much time there, but there was less of a feeling that they were really that bothered. But in Austria, they, they did seem to be. There seemed to be a palpable anger around it. And I was actually thinking, oh, I might stay a bit longer in Austria, but I ended up leaving going to Slovenia because I just thought this, is, this has been great. I mean, I'm really into the Austrian School of Economics and there's lots of reasons why I wanted to be in Austria and learn about Austria. But I just said, you know what? Like, this is just too much, guys. Sorry. like. I'll go and spend my tourist money elsewhere. Like th this is not this is not good. And unfortunately, it seems like lots of Germany is like this as well. And I know from your experience that France has got similar kinds of policies in place. Um, and honestly, man, I think that the way around it is to just vote with your feet and opt out because uh, I don't think populations of Western countries are going to be convinced unless they actually see hard examples of economic reality working differently and that's going to take a long time people will be confused about what's happening if there is like some big i mean we're already seeing inflation pick up because we've just completely mucked up all of our economies worldwide uh, due to the due to the lockdowns and people people blame it on all kinds of things though they won't blame it on the government action they'll blame it on brexit they'll blame it on uh people not getting vaccinated they'll blame it on the virus itself they'll blame it on um the free market policies of the, the more right-wing government that happens to be in power. I don't expect people to really understand, um, like to change their minds rather in a mass manner. And that's why I think free private cities or migrating to other countries where they are more uh, forward thinking uh, is probably the preferable option. Totally agree, mate. It's, um, it's amazing, isn't it? The home of human action has just stifled all human action it, it's as sad as it gets it truly is it is sad yeah and for um for those karens out there that shout me down every time i say you know what are we doing this is exactly the same we've we've, we've been here before 
you know, 1930s. This is a total repeat and they can't make that. They can't join the dots. They can't see what's going on. It's just completely amazing to me. And yeah, you, you're right. You know, here in France, the, the people here are so used now to showing these freaking barcodes wherever they go. QR codes, excuse me. Might as well be a barcode. Might as well be tattooed on your forearm. There you go, listeners. I said it. Because it's fucked. And it's just beyond belief that we've got this far. And I wonder, Pete, whether this is... When you look at the, the sovereign individual theses... Governments have read the same book. I mean, my goodness, it was written by Rhys Mogg's father. Like, they know what they're doing. And is this a shakeout? Because if you do vote with your feet, they don't, they don't care. You're gone. What they're going to be left with is total compliance. If there's a brain drain from that company, oh, excuse me, yeah, country, Faustian slip, may as well be a company, right? But if, you know, like... You've left the UK. Let's say I leave France. Let's say Gigi's left Austria. Let's say all these Bitcoiners are leaving and, and other people, not just Bitcoiners, uh, you know, people just sick of it, free thinkers. They're all gone. They get shaken out. They go and find another jurisdiction to live, with, live in. Let's say 5 million people leave the UK. What does that matter to them? They don't need the tax money. They just print the money whenever they want. But what they get is 60 million compliant people rather than a 5 million extra of troublemakers, rabble rousers, whatever you want to call them. So this might be an area where I part company with you slightly, Daniel, in that I don't believe that people in the government have really read The Sovereign Individual. I'm sure Jacob Rees-Mogg has read it and knows about it. <laughs> have they read anything? <laughs> Honestly, I don't buy into the theory that the people in government really know what's going on and they're trying to do something that will give them power and make them successful. Like they're obviously interested in winning the next general election and being in power and the prestige that comes from it. But I, I don't really buy into the theory that there's enough sophistication, frankly, for them to have read Rhys Mogg's book, understood the dynamics and then taken an intelligent countermeasure to it. It, it's, it makes an interesting story, makes an interesting, compelling case. Like a lot of us, I think there's something quite inherent to the human personality that we like sophisticated actors and hidden things where we find that people have been moving behind the scenes and that's actually how we explain everything that's going on. But honestly, I, I think there's a much simpler and benign explanation for what's going on, well, benign, but like boring explanation, which is that actually the people that are in the UK government genuinely believe that they're doing the right thing. They're genuinely faced with insoluble problems due to the fact that we have a majoritarian system and their job is to try and do the best they can for 65 million people, knowing that there's no objective criteria for doing that because they're not exposed to any kind of market signals. They just have to basically guess and go on emotion and go on anecdote. And my constituent had a problem with this cladding. So therefore, I'm going to tell, tell the entire UK that they have to use this other kind of cladding or whatever the issue is. I do think genuinely 
there are some intelligent people. It takes a certain kind of emotional intelligence to be to be in the government and to succeed in it. Um, but I honestly think a lot of them just aren't particularly bright. And a lot of them believe this stuff. Frankly, like in part because there's not really the counter argument isn't really been made in a, in a vocal way. Um, you've had the Mises Institute making, making the counter argument for a long time, but they don't really get attention on mainstream media. And I think it's only now that Bitcoin has become a global phenomenon that people are starting to kind of pay attention because there's a huge movement behind Bitcoin and money. And that's kind of making people wake up to the Austrian School of Economics. But honestly, I mean, just listen to people in parliament talk, listen to the way they reason, listen to their logic. This is one of the things I take from Alex Epstein, because Alex Epstein is a great thinker about energy and a moral philosopher. And he's, but he's not done a, like a PhD in energy. He's written books about energy and he's got great insights into energy, but he's not got a PhD in energy. And people always say to him, well, how do you know? You haven't got a PhD in energy or environmental science or this, how can you make a judgment about it? And he says, I do it the same way I make a judgment about everything because I can't be an expert in everything. I listen to people, I hear their arguments, I hear their evidence, and I listen to the logic of their arguments. And that's the most crucial thing we can do. We can listen to the logic of arguments of different people. And if we think someone's logic doesn't make sense, even if they are in a position of authority, then logic science is open to everyone. We can see what logic is. Logic is transparent, it's kind of simple. If someone's not being illogical, then that's something we can all detect regardless of our level of empirical understanding. And I just think listening to the way that people reason in the UK parliament, you can tell that they're not logical thinkers. They don't have a sound framework for what they're doing. They're in a bit of an uncomfortable mess, very low bandwidth, under a lot of pressure to do what they're doing in their job. They kind of believe it's vaguely the right thing, but don't really have a foundational basis. And that's just a product of the political system we have. I thought those people are naturally going to end up in government and in power because we have this kind of political system. And I personally don't think it's a nefarious, sophisticated plot. The reality is a little bit sadder in a way. I just think it's a lot of confused people trying to do the right thing. And that's backfiring on a mass scale. And it won't be realized for a long time because countries like the UK have got a huge amount of deep capital and deep capital structures in the form of the people, the buildings, the, the infrastructure, these things, a lot of them were, were built up in, in the 19th century and then developed in the 20th century. These things don't disappear overnight. And what it gives people is the delusion because they can make loads of mistakes in the UK and they'll still be better off than China or they'll still be better off than India. They can make catastrophic mistakes and they'll still be better off because they've got the capital, the physical capital there and the, mostly the intellectual capital or whatever is, is quite hard for people to actually move. But they just say, oh, look, we're, we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Therefore, we've got the right model. And it's like, no, like you, you used to run an empire that spanned the rest of the world. And obviously, I don't agree with empire. But the, the reason that Britain was able to do that is because it had a huge amount of economic power from a relatively laissez-faire economic system where government spending accounted for something like seven to eight percent of GDP. That's how Britain got so powerful. That's why when you go to country to cities like Bristol, you can wander around, you can see like all of these amazingly beautiful houses everywhere. And you think this was all built during the 19th century. What is it that like and we can't we can't house people now. 
we've got a huge housing crisis in the UK, houses are too expensive, young people can't afford houses. And yet in the 19th century, you get a feeling for it. I mean, obviously things were really a lot worse in the 19th century overall, but some things we, we did seem to be able to do better, like build houses for people. And when you walk in Bristol, you say, there were so many of these houses. The population of the UK was about half what it was today. Like we must have been doing something reasonably right to be able to develop that from nothing. And I think the basic problem we've got is that we're a wealthy country in Britain and people say that's a product of the political policies we've pursued in the last few decades. And it's like, no, like you've pursued a mixture of policies, some of which have been good, some of which have been bad, but you're basically wealthy for historical reasons. And you can do a lot of stuff that's bad. And this is the advantage of economics. It allows you to reason properly about value and about wealth and pinpoint the things which have led to progress and pinpoint the things which have been holding you back. And by just saying, oh, the whole system is great and that's why we've been successful is not the right logical way to think about economic progress. Yeah, and one could wager it has a lot to do with being on the gold standard back in the 19th century or as close to it as we've we've known in the last couple of centuries. Uh, and in, you know, in the fiat standard in Safe's latest book, where you know he opens up with, I mean, rewriting the history books needs to be it needs to happen, right? You know, uh, what the fuck happened in 1914? I think he has that uh, that that web domain when um, Britain truly came off the the gold standard, uh, and you see the difference in architecture and it's it's so stark um but before we go down that rabbit hole i want to bring this back to free private cities this is why you're here you were in el salvador for the announcement of bitcoin city and you ended up over there chatting with the guys that are putting this together uh you were invited across and you were giving me some voice message updates it was pretty exciting so what what, what can you share what are you allowed to say so, yeah, as you mentioned, there was a an announcement by President Bukele in late November that he was going to build a Bitcoin city in the Gulf of Fonseca in the eastern part of El Salvador. And we didn't know anything about this before the announcement. The announcement was that this was going to be a quite liberally a liberal policy environment within Bitcoin city and the president was going through and saying, we're going to have 0% income tax, 0% property tax, 0% transaction tax, et cetera. Um, and, and the one tax that we're going to have is VAT, but um, basically it was like kind of a positioning as a low tax, more liberal, more autonomous kind of city. And as the Free Private Cities Foundation, we, we saw this, we, we view this with great interest because it's happening in a country where the president seems to be less wedded to the standard socialist thinking about how countries should run and it's also happening in a country where they have adopted they have unleashed the forces of free market money on the population probably without really understanding what the implications of that are probably thinking that it makes them seem a bit cool and that it's going to make payments work a bit better and that uh, yeah bitcoin number go up we're going to increase our foreign reserves and look really clever but have they really understood what it means to have free market money I mean, maybe there are some of them that have, and they think like us, and they think that that's a great thing because it actually diminishes government power in the long run and puts power in the hands of the people in the long run. 
but I think probably they're thinking this is a way that the El Salvadoran government becomes more respected and more powerful. And that may happen in the short term, but they've uh, unleashed free market money on the population. And that's not something you can put back in the box very easily. And in terms of Bitcoin City, we viewed it as an exciting development and i think what we're trying to do now and um, because we are we have been able to get some good access within el salvador and talk to people is we're trying to make the case for, for more of a free private cities model and say look guys it's great that you want to have low taxes and stuff but at the end of the day you're still requiring people pay vat which means they've got to submit all of their expenses to a central authority they've got to waste all their time doing that they've got to go through all the accounting things why don't you just have a subscription model like our model whereby no one has to bother, no, no one in the world, other than for a salary, wants to have to wade through everyone's receipts and work out exactly how much VAT is paid on them. Like everyone regards it as a real pain. And just say to people, this is an area where we're gonna have a special policy, which is that it's run by an operating company and you pay a certain amount to be resident, that covers your roads, that covers your basic security, but then other than that, you are free to do what you want. We're trying to make the case and say, that's actually what's going to make Bitcoin City really unique. I mean, it's already unique because it uses Bitcoin and it's basically at the moment, as it stands, a free trade zone, a liberal economic zone with Bitcoin, which doesn't exist anywhere else. But what we're trying to say is that you can go further. You can do something that's actually going to really drive in companies, which is you can say to them, basically, you pay a subscription fee to live here, but we're not going to tax you. We're not going to try and control all of your activities. It doesn't mean to say that the companies will just go and do whatever they want, because as I said, um, some companies will voluntarily agree to be regulated because they want to trade internationally. I was speaking to some guys from who are looking to set up a bank in Prosper earlier this week, and they're actually designing some legislation that people can voluntarily enter into so they can say with other banks, we are regulated and here's our regulation. But then again, that's that's something that the bank decides to do. It's not imposed by the government. So we're trying to make the case in El Salvador that's what Bitcoin City should do. Obviously, the politicians there have to deal with the political realities of what will be acceptable and what won't. But my view increasingly, Daniel, is just to be honest and don't be scared of making a proper economic and moral case. Because in reality, when most people hear it, they're going to like, actually, that does make sense. And actually, I am fed up with political struggles and talking about politics all the time. I just want to understand what I need to do, what I need to pay. People that disagree can go somewhere else and then we can get on with our lives. And are they under the volcano? Like, uh, that's a thing. They, they're using a volcano to mine as well. Yeah, they are using a volcano to mine. It's called Conchawa volcano. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> Well, that's where they're proposing the mining and the electricity for Bitcoin City comes. They've got another plant which is doing volcano mining further inland near to San Salvador. But yeah, they're doing that and that's all good. And there's lots of grand ideas about Bitcoin City. But ultimately, what I think is important is not the specifics of how you mine the Bitcoin, because that might sound cool. But really, I think that should be down to entrepreneurial judgment rather than determined by the government. Um, but it's like the opportunity to do something truly liberal. And I think while you've got Bukele in power, he does seem to be actually interested in doing new things and open to ideas. He seems to listen to people. 
much more than other politicians I've come across and invite them in and say, hey, what do you think we should do? Like, otherwise, you wouldn't have agreed to launching a volcano bond with Blockstream. Like, imagine that happening in Maidstone, Kent, or <laughs> Manchester, <laughs> or something. Like, nah. Have you been down? Have you been down that rabbit hole yet? Have you looked into the volcano bonds? Is there any any kind of insights that you've 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 garnered from from any research? Yeah, I personally really like the idea, and I think they've got a challenge in El Salvador because what they're doing is perceived by international markets as risky, taking on adopting Bitcoin, and they've also they're not engaging with the IMF in the way that international markets would like them to. Because the traditional model is that for a developing country, you get loans from the IMF, you have a good relationship with the IMF, the US and the IFIs, you pay them back the money in good time. And if you pay that on time and have a nice governance model and raise your taxes in the right way, then it's all good and your bonds are credit worthy. El Salvador, despite having some of the highest economic growth in, in the region, so you'd think, oh, that's bullish for El Salvador in bonds. El Salvador is not playing this game in quite the same way as other countries are. And the reason and the result of that is that the yields on its bonds have shot up really high. Last I checked, they're about 13%, which I'd have to check what they are now. But it's it's really high by international standards in a in a world where you know German bonds are negative yielding, uh, Swiss bonds are negative yielding, to have uh 17% yield on the bond is really high. Suggests that you're really risky. And with, Bit with the Bitcoin bond, they're trying to sell these for 6.5% and uh, yield, which is a high yield still, but it's like basically if El Salvador defaults, this bond is going to default, is, is the assumption. Even though the bond is in part backed by Bitcoin, um, basically, I think it's going to be a challenge to encourage people to buy the bond as opposed to buying much higher yielding Salvadoran government debt if they're bullish on El Salvador. But the thing that's different about this, and a thing that I think is a great development, is that they're tying Salvadorian citizenship to purchase of the bond. So basically, they're selling Salvadorian citizenship for, for money, in part through this package. And some people say, oh, you're selling our country, I was selling our citizenship, this is... My view is completely different. My view is that I want as many citizens as possible for my country, for other countries, because at the end of the day, as long as you don't have a system whereby citizens can come in and start extracting wealth, as long as you have a free market system where people just are forced to undertake voluntary interactions, you want to have as many people as possible because these people are your customers. These people are productive. These people contribute to your community. They're people that you can learn from. They're, people are valuable at the end of the day. And we want to have, I want to have more people, more access, for, for general people that want to live and work peacefully with me to have that opportunity. And I think on an anecdotal basis, when we talk to people from other countries, they're always talking about, oh, I'd love to come to your country, but I can't get a visa. I can't get a visa to do this. I can't get a work permit. And we all feel a bit of sympathy for them on the kind of individual level. But then a lot of us still say, well, there needs to be some policy. We can't have too many people coming in. House prices are going up. But the fact is we're blaming it all on the wrong stuff. We're blaming it on the government we're blaming it on the immigrants when actually it's the government intervention that's distorting the way people 
interact and potentially making it harmful. Like if you have an immigrant that can come in and they can claim for a house and they can claim all kinds of benefits, that does have an economic cost. And you can understand why people might want to spend that economic value on other things that they view as more deserving of it than that particular thing, like basically getting one family up to a Western standard of living. You know, for that, you could maybe get 10 families in the Philippines up to, say, a Chinese standard of living or something. Like They may think that's more valuable, for example. Um, but what I'm saying about El Salvador is that they're tying citizenship to the bond. So if you purchase $100,000 worth of this bond, I mean, this is still to be confirmed. This is the rumor. This is what being employed by people, you'll end up with Salvadorian citizenship, like actual citizenship. So that means that you can get a Salvadorian passport and you can fly in and out and you can access all the countries that a Salvadorian passport can. And I think this is brilliant because there are loads of Westerners, there's loads of people that are looking around and saying, I'm really like, I need options. We're talking about Austria. People in Austria that don't like what's happening need real options. And if you want a second citizenship, they can go to St. Lucia and they can pay $100,000 just to buy a citizenship, basically. Or they buy property in St. Lucia for two, three thousand, or whatever, and then they get the passport. They've just bought a citizenship. And there's about you know, eight, nine countries where you can basically just buy a, buy a citizenship. St. Kitts and Nevis is another one. Like Generally, it's small island nations. But what El Salvador is saying is you can have a citizenship of El Salvador and El Salvador's possible pretty good. You can go to Europe, visa-free and stuff. Um, you can't go to North America, um, to Canada and the US, but you can go to like Europe and many places visa-free on a Salvadoran passport. And they're saying, yeah, we're gonna give you this and we're not gonna ask you to buy it for a hundred grand. We're saying we're, we're gonna pay you back a coupon of 6.5% a year. And then we're gonna pay you back the principal in 10 years and to me that's that's great because i think it's great for el salvador to have more people that are going to be coming in and out that feel like they're part of it so they can invest it's a bit of a no-brainer and i don't know why more countries aren't doing it to be frank that's the thing that will push people i think to buy the bitcoin bond take the low yield because it's amazing they're buying a citizenship to go with it absolutely you you, you get the yield and the passport uh, the thing is, Daniel, the I love is, the fact the problem is, as we both know, it's easy to conceptualize this in terms of individuals. Um, and I think a reasonable number of people will buy the bond for individual reasons. But actually, the money is from the institutions and that's where real money flows. And, and this kind of advantage of citizenship is not going to prove to an institution. It's not like, oh, your staff get 50 citizenships. If you're an institutional investor, you don't get that. So. That's something where it's like, okay, it remains to be seen how much demand there is for that citizenship and for that like lower yield bond um, from individuals. But yeah, I think institutions, there'll be more reluctance um, for the reasons I've, because they're not buying the citizenship. It's, it's funny, right? Because it, there's probably a lot of plebs listening to this. Like, what the hell are these guys talking about? Like six and a half percent, who cares? Just buy Bitcoin. Like, yeah, of course, you just buy Bitcoin and hold and you will outperform that. But to your point, if you need that second passport, if you fear for the next 10 years of what's going to happen, this is a deal of a lifetime. There's nothing that 
I don't know, maybe another country comes out because these are the first ones. They've anchored the price, right? I love the fact as well it's being priced as a junk bond. You know, it's Bitcoin banked and <laughs> Bitcoin backed and they're still pricing it as a junk bond, 6.5%. Uh, you know, it, the irony, the irony is not lost. But let's say another country comes in now and says, right, we're going to do Bitcoin bonds. They're going to have to go higher and they're going to have to offer the citizenship as well. So the game theory, again, all works back into Bitcoin's favor because, you know, say Panama, Paul, Paul the next, mm. we're going on a Bitcoin standard and we want to attract this amount of cash and these type of people here. They're going to look at what El Salvador have done and they're going to say, all right, we'll yield 8%. Same, same terms, same amount of years. You get the passport. Maybe there's more countries. And now all of a sudden, us as Bitcoiners can start shopping around. It's not just the Bitcoiners can start shopping around. Of course, anybody can buy these things. But we seem to be definitely ahead of the game of understanding exactly what's going on. Yeah. I wouldn't say that's necessarily a good thing for Bitcoin if, if other countries are coming in and having to outcompete on the market for, with higher yields, um, because that means basically there's less demand for the bond. But I think it's significant this is being used as a financing mechanism. I think it's significant that we are going to have a, a framework now whereby people can issue bonds by Bitcoin and they tie it to citizenship and they can see whether it works. And if more and more people do that, that means less and less reliance on the IMF in the developing world. It means that there is more and more demand for Bitcoin because you have to buy Bitcoin to back something with Bitcoin. And it's in general very bullish. But El Salvador is the first case. And it is, you know, markets are markets. And I've got my view about how risky it is. You've got your view about how risky it is. The market has said that it's this risky, or Salvadorian debt is that risky. Um, you know, there are risks associated with what El Salvador is doing for sure. Um, but, you know, quite whether you think it's a good deal or not, I guess that's down to your entrepreneurial uh, judgment. It's down to, yeah, the individual. It's down to human action. Uh, it's, it's so interesting. And like you say, huge conglomerates are going to be drawn to this because they see, they're going to see that yield and they can't, they can't ignore that. When anything else, any other fixed income out there is 0.x, whatever, you know, say the number. And they're saying, yeah, six and a half percent. So even if they put in a half a percent, some of these huge American life insurance, whatever, pension funds, doesn't matter. Like that money flows in. What are El Salvador going to do with a good percentage of that cash? They're just going to go straight in and hoover up Bitcoin. Hmm. Yeah, um, potentially, or they might use it to actually do what they said they're going to do, which is build infrastructure around Bitcoin City. Um, they've got, they've oh. got you know, debts they need to pay and they have got costs. So uh, I would expect it not just to flow, I would expect some of it to, to Bitcoin, hopefully. And yeah, but there would also, there is, they are like in a position as a government, like they, they've got debts, they've got things to pay. Um, I would expect it to go into that. And the yields are high, but then they're not high by accident. They're high because they are risk weighted. 
and that's the perception of the risk associated with El Salvador. I mean, my personal take on El Salvador is just very bullish. I think it's going places. I think the people are badass. I think like <laughs> going there, seeing people do stuff, very practical people. They're open-minded, they get Bitcoin. Um, I think it's going places. But then again, if you're trying to do something with Bitcoin, you are going up against a very powerful legacy system with very powerful vested interests. And the US can make a huge amount of trouble for people that don't agree with its systems through sanctions or through whatever, through cutting people out of the WTO or whatever it is. So there are those kinds of risks. Risks that might not be associated with whether we think Bitcoin is hard money or not, or whether we think the technology behind Bitcoin works in the way that people say it does, but more just like realpolitik risks to the Salvadorian government. Because this is a tiny country, 6.5 million people. It's kind of going out alone and being like, yeah, we're just going to do this. We're just going to finance ourselves independently of the IMF. And I, that's why I'm like, these guys are cool. <laughs> I want to hang out there a bit more. <laughs> I can give you some anecdotal stories from El Salvador if you want. Yeah. Anecdotal stories, because there were the two conferences, right, that, that you went to. Um, I'm trying to remember what you were relaying back to me. Well, you were just blown away, actually, by the, the level of acceptance of Bitcoin and how you could just use it in your day-to-day -day life. I wouldn't say that, actually, Daniel. I was blown away by the manner in which Bitcoin, when used properly just worked seamlessly that doesn't mean that this bitcoin was widely used and widely understood by most of the population i'd say it was accepted in san salvador accepted about 50 percent of the time and used regularly probably by about one percent of the people when you go outside of san salvador the acceptance level drops off i'm really talking about zona rosa to be honest like the the wealthy district of San Salvador. That's where it's 50%. When you get outside of that, you're dropping down to like 20, 10% of people that would use it would actually be able to accept Bitcoin. Um, but what I was really excited by is that when you do use it, particularly when you're interacting with like a multinational company that's got proper payment solutions set up, like OpenNode or Ibex Mercado, it's just very seamless and very quick. And you just think, this is so dumb that we're using anything else other than this. And so I was impressed by that. And I was also impressed by individual stories when I did speak to people, when I did speak to the 1% of people that are regularly using Bitcoin, it was inspiring because the things they were doing with it are exactly the things that we in the community have been saying for years that will become possible with Bitcoin uh, that are not currently possible within the existing systems that we have. You know, people people using it as a store of value when they're normally having to hold cash. And so it's not not even like being in the UK or in the US where you can hold money in a bank account and you might get, it's probably pretty low, but you'll still get some interest if you hold it there over time. In El Salvador, 70% of the population don't have a bank account. So they just have to take the hit on inflation. They just hold cash. They've got any savings that just loses depending on your metric for inflation, between 2% and maybe 25% a year in value. Um, but what Bitcoin is doing is allowing people to save in something that's hard money. 
and people recognize that it goes up and down and people are still put off by the fact that it can go down they don't like the fact that i could have 30 us dollars and then tomorrow it can be worth 28 lots of people are put off by that for sure but then again lots of people are realizing that that's the nature of volatility and that in the long term this is going up and so they're using it as a savings vehicle and they're they're, they're spending their bitcoin when the bitcoin price rises on the sh in the short term and then they're saving bitcoin uh, when it when it goes down in price and so they're kind of trading and they're taking advantage of the government chivo app which allows them to transit between us dollars and bitcoin for free until withdrawal and they're sort of using that as a way of trading um but there's also other examples like people lots of these examples come from the nature of most of the the fact that most of the salvadorian population are unbanked and so simple problems like i was talking to a business owner in san miguel someone who sells balloons for a living like party stuff for a living and she was saying that now i've got now that i've got bitcoin i can just pay all my suppliers electronically this wasn't possible before i had to actually physically go to my suppliers and spend one day every couple of weeks making the trip and putting cash in their hand because i now have bitcoin i have the chivo app i can just send it to them and i get that time back for my family that was one example another mobile phone a saleswoman in Kinshawa told me i use this because it works seamlessly i can do the transactions but also i just view it as a bit more hygienic i don't like handling cash all the time so i can just do it all on the phone and i prefer this method again someone without a bank account and then you know there are the people that are as i say using it as a as a savings vehicle and store of value so it is inspiring it is good to see that people are actually making use of it without really having gone down the rabbit hole in the way we have they're just seeing it as a tool and they're kind of playing around with this tool and seeing what can this tool do for me and at a small at a small scale they are starting to find the uses that a lot of people have said they will find for a long time i'm listening to this uh, i think we've all seen the posts on twitter of bitcoin beach and it's generally the the single crowd the single bachelor bitcoiners that are down there having a great time and hanging out and doing all the cool stuff but what about like the the family man like me is el salvador a viable option for for a family do you think to go and check out i would say totally yes and the reason people think it isn't is because there's a lot of perceptions around safety in el salvador if you look at official statistics on homicide, El Salvador ranks very highly. And there's no doubt that there is a high homicide rate compared to other countries. But if you're a foreigner going there and you're worried about having problems, being robbed, being kidnapped, being ransomed in some way, I mean, just look online, you know, type in to Google News, foreigner, ransomed, kidnapped in El Salvador. I mean, there's no pits like these things become known if they happen. And there's a very small number of news stories about anything remotely related to this. And I guess this is a commonality in, in the region in general. If you get mixed up with certain things, if you go to certain bars where alcohol is involved, if you are involved in drugs in some way, that is basically, especially in Mexico where I am now, you know, that's like a government protected monopoly and you don't muck around with that. And people do get killed all the time 
the stuff related to that. But if you stay out of that, if you just want to have a peaceful life with your family, you can do so in El Salvador very cheaply and with really welcoming, open-minded people around you who are very accepting and interested in foreigners. That's not everyone, but that's a lot of people are just very open and interested and they don't have this sense of very strong ethnic nationalism that you do get in, for example, some East Asian countries. And yeah, there's loads of options and lots of people are put off because of safety. And I would just say, I mean, I can't, I don't want to tell people to be reckless, but if you avoid those sensitive areas, if you're just not reckless in going about dark, dodgy places at night by yourself or whatever, I don't think you're going to have any problems. I certainly have no problems. And I did go to like, you know, I, I wandered around San Miguel, which is a pretty like edgy part of El Salvador over in the east by myself at night. I never felt like anyone was following me or going to like rob me or anything. Um, and a lot of people were a lot less like they wouldn't do that anyway. But I, I just think, yeah, it's a great place. Let's support them as well. I think loads of people are going to end up there just because of the realities of the economic situation. People can use Bitcoin. There are a lot of Bitcoiners like it there. Bukele has been pretty liberal on stuff like COVID policies. So he said that you don't need to show any kind of test to get into El Salvador now. So that's one of, I think, five or six countries in the world that has that policy. So there are lots of reasons why people, I think, just, just generally appealing to move to El Salvador. And the more people go, the more, as I was saying, to the more agglomeration benefits you get and the more attractive it, it becomes, I think. So I'm pretty bullish on El Salvador. Awesome. And if, if any listeners want to go back and dig out my episode with uh, Mike Peterson from Bitcoin Beach, I did ask him the same question and he has kids and they go into the international school there. So, you know, the, this is a real viable option. There, there is definitely an element of do your own research, of course, but... The, the the feedback I'm getting from people that have been there, I've spoken to John about it, I've spoken to Obi about it. Everybody's had just such an amazing time, and you're here, you know, backing that up as well. That um, yeah, watch this space. It, it, it's it's pretty amazing, and we've seen the news recently. Max and Stacy have taken um, a citizenship there, uh, so it's attracting the big names in air quotes uh, of the Bitcoin space, um, you know, Max and Stacey humble enough, I'm sure to, uh, uh, to, to not think of themselves that way, but we certainly look up to them. Um, mate, so, so, so give us your, your, your recent update to me was, was very amusing. Uh, your, your experience in Mexico, where you are at the moment, well, you've, you've come from El Salvador and you're used to paying in Bitcoin and you're used to transacting with people and talking to big people about Bitcoin. And then all of a sudden you've got to pay a hotel bill and then Fiat Life comes knocking at your door to put a big custard pie in your face. Yeah. So the thing about Mexico is that if you're using a foreign card particularly, the issues with the Fiat system are just more transparent than they would be if you were doing this in Britain or another other your home country where we're used to using credit cards and debit cards all the time in britain and most western countries it's 
not legally allowed for the merchant to charge people extra for using a debit card at least. But in Mexico, there's none of that. And it does cost merchants a lot of money, like three, four, 5% to accept a debit card transaction even. Um, so what happens in Mexico is that the costs of that are passed on to the customer. The customer's told you can pay in cash, it's this much. If you pay on card, it's this much. It doesn't happen everywhere. Sometimes they give you the same, but that's pretty common practice. And similarly to like when you go, when you walk around London in the UK, you see lots of smaller shops. They say, no, we don't take card because the card companies come in here. They want to sell us this package. They want money for it. They want a percentage of every transaction. We just said, no, we're not going to bother. We're going to do it all in cash. Obviously that does limit you because cash isn't a perfect instrument for trade. Cash is physical cash is, is physical. And so it's a bad instrument for trade across space but people prefer it in some instances to paying all these fees through card. And if you've got a card fee, then basically you're obligated to either have the discussion, are you gonna pay an extra four or 5% or are you going to um, do it in cash or, or whatever? Most people just don't bother with it, smaller businesses. So, or the bigger businesses just pretend the machine's broken. So when I turned up here at my hotel, I had a 600 pound uh, ish hotel bill. And of course the hotel owner doesn't take card. I, I'm still getting used to this region a bit. So I assumed he would be able to, but then I had to go to a cash machine to get out physical cash. There's a withdrawal limit. So I was only able to withdraw this amount of money over a three day period. I went to the first bank, which was HSBC, which is actually the bank that I, this particular bank card is associated with. And they wanted to charge me a flat fee of like three pounds, three dollars or something like that, plus 5.5% of the value of the transaction just to withdraw cash. And so you hit by that. And then I managed to find another ATM that could do it more cheaply. And I withdrew it there. So I'm literally physically cycling from this hotel, 15 minutes to this cash machine, 15 minutes and back again, doing that three days in a row just to pay my bill. And you compare it. it, it it's frustrating, but I think there's a tendency, there would be a tendency 10 years ago for us to say, hey, this is just the way the world is. Mexico's a developing country. They haven't caught up with what we've got yet. And actually, we've got something which is still a bit naff. We've still got this ridiculous system where we're paying financial intermediaries a cut of every single transaction we make, basically. And that's all economic value lost. Actually, even China doesn't have that because China doesn't have the regulations we have in the UK, which prevent us from implementing WeChat, Alipay type centralized payment services. China, China has free transactions because they allow WeChat and Alipay to operate, which is frankly a scandal that we don't allow this in the UK for financial regulatory reasons. But China just solved that problem trivially about seven, eight years ago, because this is the thing. Like, People talk about China as this socialist system, but in China, people can actually just do stuff like this. And the government's like, yeah, do it, go for it. They did. And they transformed the entire payments industry and literally everyone in China, the young, the old, because it's so simple to do, they're all using electronic payments. So I guess the frustration with somewhere like Mexico is that you're like, why on earth when payments technologies exist and when Bitcoin exists. Am I doing this? Because I just come from El Salvador where I can pay anyone any amount of money that has a Bitcoin wallet 
seamlessly over the Lightning Network. Transaction done, complete, problem solved. I can see exactly where it is. I'm not going to have a problem with the bank calling me up and saying, hey, we detected a fraudulent transaction on your car because you're in Mexico. And obviously, you can't be in Mexico. You're British. You know, it's like <laughs> Bitcoin just fixes it in such a frustratingly obvious way that it's hard not to get angry. You're like, guys, if you heard of Bitcoin, please just do this so that we can stop this nonsense. But you've been pilling the hotel manager, I believe. I have, and I, I had a very good chat with him on day one. The thing is, I found this with a lot of people, they need touch points. So me coming along, I can be very convincing talking to him about Bitcoin, but generally they need about three or four people to save them. Oh, you should check out Bitcoin. Oh, you should check out Bitcoin. And the hotel owner here is pretty, he's actually quite interested in investing and stuff. And he's been reading a lot of investment books. And he was very interested in my story about about Bitcoin personally, like how I came into it. Um, and I've recommended Vijay Boyapati's series of articles, um, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin to him, which are available in Spanish. So he's having a read of them. But um, I'm not sure where he's got to that with that. I'll uh, have to wait a few more days till I update you on whether he's been truly orange pilled by that process. You're doing Satoshi's work. And what was, uh, no, I won't ask you to dox him, but it was a pretty funny, uh, his I think name. I can tell you his first name was Jesus. Yeah, so I did post in the <laughs> safety in Telegram group. Don't mean to be overdramatic, guys, but I'm currently entrepreneuring Jesus. And <laughs> love it. Yeah, it was absolutely good. love it. So uh, yeah, I don't think we've doxed Jesus in Mexico. Uh, I, I think he's pretty safe, <laughs> mate. Before we before we shut this one down, it's been a great rip. It, you know, it's always great to catch up. On a personal note, anyway, just to you know, record this as we've been banging on has been brilliant. Uh, you wanted to shill liberty in our lives. What was in this? our lifetime? In our lifetime, right? Okay, sorry. What 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 is this exactly? Sure. So we talked quite a lot at the beginning about the Free Private Cities Foundation, and one of the things the foundation has decided to do is run an event where people that are interested in learning about what free private cities is, what projects aligned to our ethos are active around the world, what opportunities there are to invest in these projects, what opportunities there are to move to these projects, can all come together in one place. And we ran a small conference last year with about 150 to 200 people in Mulheim, Switzerland. And that was a great event for you know, getting to know the community and networking, such a positive kind of vibe around it. And next year, basically, we're looking doing, at doing something that's about twice the size in Prague. And so if any of your listeners are into, have been intrigued by this idea of free private cities and want to learn more about it, this is going to be the place where you have the chance to meet absolutely everyone that is working in the space. You'll learn about all the relevant projects. You'll be able to have debates with people if you think I'm wrong, if you think we've got some things that we should be adopting that we're not, then this is the place where you can you can tell us directly and talk to the speakers. Uh, it's just a very great welcoming open open vibe for libertarian minded people that are interested in doing politics and doing money uh, differently, really relevant to Bitcoiners, uh, because as I say, uh, for most of us, <laughs> Bitcoin runs through the whole idea of free private cities, it's the financial technology that's going to make them possible in the 21st century. 
because previously you'd have to have had some way of coordinating international trade independently of existing systems and as we've mentioned complying with those systems basically means that you are just different versions of that of the main you know main global uh, globalized world system so yeah i really encourage your your listeners to come along or if you, any of your listeners are sponsors and are looking to um, advertise at our event or have a presence at our event we'd be really interested to speak to you um, you can email us at info at freeprivatecities.com or you can contact me on twitter my handle is peter mi young and we've also got a free private cities official account which is free private city not free private cities because free private cities is too long to fit in the uh, <laughs> to comply with the twitter naming algorithms but uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you whether you're interested in coming or sponsoring and this is going to be the place it's prague october 2022 mate that sounds awesome i want to get there i hope you all can right. I, all right I'm, I'm forming a plan in my mind already and what about uh free private cities you run an ambassador program i believe we do have our ambassadors yeah an ambassador program so uh, it's not so much a program it's more a network of people internationally that are involved in business some way or have some kind of position where they might be able to bring important leads or intelligence to the network and who might be able to help spread the word about what we do so some of our ambassadors they're kind of prominent and we have messages that we want to get out to people and they help us to to get those messages out on social media platforms uh, they also feed into some of our discussions about strategy and what we do we have a ambassadors group on uh, on wire that we that we use to all, all stay in touch and share suggestions so uh, if you want to find out more about that you can go to our website www.freeprivatecities.com and go to the team section and, and in the about us there is a list of ambassadors and you can see whether there's an ambassador city available that you might want to represent uh, if you're interested in uh, being part of the network and think you can bring us some good connections and information about what's happening in your region just speaking with andrew yesterday who's uh, a fresh ambassador for uh, mexico andrew howard from bitcoin yeah. reserve so it's happening it's, it's happening right. listeners yeah it's great to have andrew on board this is there's no stopping it right you cannot put the genie back in the bottle I think that's true. A new uh, Bitcoiner is born in every day in El Salvador, creates every day in El Salvador, all these places. Uh, there aren't many people that get Bitcoin and then say, oh, I, I now get Bitcoin, but I'm just not really that into it anymore. I don't think it's going to be that much of a big deal. It's pretty much a one way street. So I only see this going in one direction, whether it happens quickly or whether it happens slowly, I think will depend on a lot of things. My, my tendency is to think that we're going to assume it's going to be a while until we see real global transformation where this is like potentially a new currency in Britain or whatever. Like I see that as a decades long journey. Um, but in the short term, seeing things happen in El Salvador, there's loads going on. It's exciting. It's happening quickly. And I think there's kind of an economic inevitability about it because we've now invented the hardest money that's ever existed. And one thing we learned from monetary history is that in a competition between hard money and soft money, the hard money always ends up winning. If you had one orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? 
I would give it to my friend James that I'm traveling with in uh, El Salvador, in Mexico. He's, um, we're very different people. We've known each other all of our lives. Uh, mm-hmm. We're born in the same hospital in Chatham, Kent, and we've got very similar mannerisms. So if you talk to him, you'll probably think, wow, this is like talking to Peter. But his personality is totally different to mine. He's into, uh, he's an illustrator and he's got very different interests, like his music tastes are kind of different. I learned from him a lot of stuff about music. And uh, basically he, he overhears me having a lot of conversations about Bitcoin because people ask what I do. And I say, I work in the Bitcoin industry and uh, that leads to a conversation about what Bitcoin is and all people's questions about Bitcoin. So, uh, but actually he doesn't really sit me down and say, Peter, tell me what it is that you're actually doing for a living and why you think Bitcoin is valuable. I think he gets it in broad terms, but he's just not been inclined to like really press me in the way that sometimes people press me for like a two, three hour conversation. And um, yeah, maybe, maybe I would orange pill. <laughs> it's not, it's not the probably the most impactful orange pill. He's basically on board with all of it, but um, I would orange pill him because uh, he's my best friend. Is he going to listen to this podcast? don't know i'll send you the link <laughs> probably not <laughs> with you i'll send you the link to see if he says like oh you talked about james at the end That'll oh yeah it. yeah so you you just gotta wait like you gotta hang out about two hours and 15 minutes where however long we've been prattling on until you get a mention uh you know so there's a there's a little a little worm on the hook for him sure <laughs> all right mate well this has been uh an epic rip have we done everything? Is there anything else you, uh, you you need to close out with? How people can find you personally? Well, you mentioned my Twitter account. It's Peter M. I. Young. And then there's a free private city's Twitter account, free private city. Uh, follow me on Twitter. My DMs are open. If you've got any questions about anything I've said, uh, I do respond to DMs. And uh, yeah, if you have been interested in what's been said today, um, Free Private Cities is a movement. We're a very welcoming movement and we try to include people that are genuinely interested in helping us and we, we really value your support. So if this has been of interest to you, think what I'm saying makes some sense, then please reach out and there are all kinds of ways that you can support us and help make this a reality uh, quicker than it otherwise would. So it'd be great if you could do that. Mate. Pete, it's been great hanging out. I uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Dan. Always a pleasure. Take care, brother. See you soon. Take care. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Peter, for coming on and sharing everything that you just shared with us about free private cities, about El Salvador, your experience, your 10 years in China, that very close look at how capitalism crept into a very communist society, how it changed it. What can we learn from it? There was so much there to unpack, and it's been uh, you know great to get to know you over the last couple of years that we've been hanging out in um, in Safe's course. Big shout out for Safedean.com because this is where I've been meeting a lot of plebs, and we still get to hang out twice a week and bang ideas around with Safe, or just hang out on his podcast, his live podcast episodes, and even interact on those podcasts. So that is an unofficial shill for safe and his books and his work um the real shields i need to give are for swanbitcoin.com in the us you can stack your sats there 
and you'll get a free 10 bucks if you use the link in the show notes. You can also use the link in the show notes for Coin Corner, for Relay, and for Bitcoin Reserve. They will help you stack sats across Europe and the UK. So there's no excuse for you guys this side of the pond. Stop looking with your green eyes over at what's going on in the US. There's lots being built here too. Use shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bits and order yourselves a hardware wallet. The Bitbox 02 is an immense piece of kit Bitcoin only wallet. Why are you stacking sats and not taking control of them? Step up your game. And if you want to get to the conference, please check the medical requirements to enter the land of the free. Do your own research. Make your own decisions. If you want 10% off your, dis- off your tickets... Use the code BITTEN at checkout. Hit the link in the show notes. Catch you on the next one, guys.